When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Strike Talk. What do you usually think about as you're boarding a plane to go somewhere? Did I pack right? Did I forget anything? Will I be seated next to someone unpleasant? Should I try to sleep? And most importantly, will they have Wi-Fi? How much time do you spend thinking about the aircraft itself and what went into building it? In 1958, Pan American Airways was looking to replace its flagship 707 with something bigger, a lot bigger. It asked Boeing to design an aircraft that would be two and a half times larger than any passenger aircraft had ever been before. The first jumbo jet with two aisles. They were gonna call it a 747. The hurdles were massive. First, Boeing had no plant big enough to construct such a thing. The company bought a 780 acre site in Everett, Washington and put up a factory that is still the largest building by volume ever constructed. Four million cubic yards of earth had to be moved just to level it. The 747's design process was a nightmare. The original concept of a double-decker fuselage was junked, as was the original idea of a high wing. Logistics were daunting too. That 747 you're sitting in is made of 6 million component parts. Each wing alone requires 40,000 rivets. Pieces of that plane came from contractors in all 50 states. And all of that had to be figured out before production could begin in 1966, eight full years after Pan Am made the order. Thousands of employees built the first one. 2,540 of those workers were on hand solely for quality control. They were just inspectors. Systems failed and had to be redesigned. No one could figure out how to evacuate 560 passengers from such a plane in 90 seconds, which was FAA code. No one had ever built a high bypass turbofan engine before. That had to be invented as well by Pratt and Whitney. At one point, Boeing was $2 billion in debt in 1969. Had its banking syndicate refused a loan extension, the whole thing would have gone bust, including the banking syndicate. But Boeing forged ahead on faith and determination, finally producing its first 747 after a two-year build. Then tests revealed that under certain conditions, the wings oscillated, a problem that could only be solved by inserting uranium fucking counterweights into the outboard engine. The entire process was audacious, impossible. Ten years of problem solving and faith. For that plan to succeed, Boeing had to believe, Pan Am had to believe, the banks had to believe, Wall Street had to believe, the FAA had to believe, and every worker had to believe. And they did. They all pulled on the same side of the rope, even as their country 
was coming apart in a decade of spectacular turbulence. The result? 747s have now carried over 7.5 billion passengers in 23 million flight cycles with a stunning safety record. The plane has functioned as a freighter too, hauling 292,000 pounds of revenue cargo per payload. It has also carried space shuttles. It changed air travel forever. Those 6 million parts working in perfect unison so you and I can step aboard worrying only about the Wi-Fi. And all because a few executives had some vision and guts, some engineers had imagination and talent, and thousands of workers took pride in their crafts as one. That's a movie. It takes a ton of belief, years of it. It takes investment and faith and stubbornness and competence and care. Like a jumbo jet, it spends about 45 days on the assembly line and needs a lot of rivets to hold it together. It benefits from the lessons learned during the construction of every plane that preceded it, even the ones that failed. It is always a risk, a leap, and always sounds a little crazy. Someone had to believe that Francis Ford Coppola could direct a mob movie. Someone had to believe that Kevin Costner could direct a Western. Someone had to give a camera to Greta Gerwig or Ryan Coogler or Catherine Bigelow. Someone had to decide that it was a good idea to make a fucking shark movie with a kid director named Spielberg. The leap doesn't end there. Once it's built, a movie or a series on TV needs to be dated right, marketed right, publicized right, distributed right, and celebrated right. A lot of people have to protect the baby in order to honor the brilliant assembly of those six million parts. If they don't, if it crashes, we all suffer. I look at a lot of political polling, and for the last year, it's been saying one thing loud and clear, which everyone except Donald Trump seems to have heard. Americans are longing for community. They've been told for seven years that they have to hate their neighbors based on political differences and they're exhausted. They wanna get their neighbors back. They want to be part of something larger than themselves and they want that thing to be a force for good. Hollywood, for all its madness, is a community too, a family. I see evidence of it every day that I talk to executives who are desperate to get our town working again. Executives who know that the negotiation process of the AMPTP is fatally flawed and incapable of innovation a process designed to induce hostility and mistrust. They want to talk to the guilds and those back channel conversations are now beginning to open. That is ground that needs watering. So this podcast, as I said last week, is now going to become a town hall, less about advocacy and more about discussing the challenges that the companies are facing and ways in which they might begin to view writers and actors as partners and not enemies. I've asked a bunch of executives and agents to join that conversation. All of them want to, but none have said yes, yet. We're going to begin that conversation anyway on spec. It is the only way to get big things off the ground. To launch that effort, I'm joined today by three superstars, people who understand risk and rivets. They've succeeded wildly, and they've done a lot of thinking about where our business is at the moment and what we ought to be doing about it. Please meet Lily Wachowski, Craig Mazin, and Jason Blum. They know what it takes to build a jumbo jet and to make it soar. Craig, we're going to start with you. How, in your view, has the business changed in the last five years? And where do you think the landmines are for the next five? I think I'm going to be fairly reductive here and say that um, the business has been warped by Netflix. And it has been warped by the Netflix philosophy, which is... Um, I hesitate to use the word Ponzi scheme or phrase, but I will say um, <laughs> that uh, Netflix is in the business of leveraged content creation. So 
um, they are profitable on a year to year basis, but that profit is supported by a corporation that continues to borrow far more money than it has and makes. So I'm not really sure how that works other than to say that what happened was Netflix began to create content at a rate I don't think any company has ever engaged in, ever. And in doing so, everyone else stopped and went, I guess this is what we're doing now, which is um, shocking, honestly, uh, because I, I don't know, I always had faith that the people that ran businesses understood business. But then again, sometimes certain things are obvious, like movie pass. Uh, never made any goddamn sense. And I, you know, I would just say to my friends, well, I don't know, how could this possibly work? And then it didn't, <laughs> and then it fell apart because it was stupid. In the last five years, there has been an emphasis on spending massive amounts of money to create streaming platforms that are designed to compete with and, and to an extent mimic the quote unquote success of Netflix, which I don't believe is successful. And in doing so, Hollywood willingly unraveled the very system it had created that made itself money for uh, over a century. And um, what we have, what we're dealing with now is the fallout from that. We are dealing with companies that don't want to pay residuals on the basis of streaming because the more people that watch, in a weird way, I suspect the more it costs them. They also don't want to tell us how many people are watching. We used to know that through Nielsen ratings or through box office receipts or through gross video sales. And now they just don't want to tell us. They don't want to tell us either because certain shows are doing way, way better than they want us to know, or more likely a whole lot of shows aren't being watched at all. And now we got a problem because we're trying to get them to just pay us on the basis of success and they're failing and can't admit it. And they're terrified of both Wall Street and their own bad decisions. So Hollywood has painted itself into a corner. And when I say Hollywood, I mean the companies. And they're going to have to figure out how to get out of it. Our position, meaning the WGA or SAG, is actually simplicity. Uh, we, we don't know how to survive unless you do the following things. Their position is incredibly complicated and somewhat embarrassing. There are still platforms that do well and are successful. And there is certainly a way out. But I think that's what's happened in the last five years. And the next five years, my I'm going to be an optimist about this. The next five years are about clawing back to sanity. That's it. Just clawing sanity back and making sense of all this, because right now it doesn't. So, Jason, if Netflix is going to be selling ad space for its shows, doesn't it have to at least open up its books to the advertisers? I'm so glad there's someone who's like more direct and outspoken than I am. I mean, this is like such a relief. I feel like a burden has been lifted. There's nothing that Craig said that I disagree with. Nothing. I would frame it a little bit differently, a little more broadly, um, which is for me, it, it's not Netflix, it's tech. So it's not just Netflix, it's Amazon and Apple as well. And Every industry is going through to a certain to a certain extent what we are going through, which is tech came in 10 years ago and often for the same reason, for the same reason it, in entertainment as like take transportation, profit stopped mattering because Wall Street was so enamored of how 
how tech was going to change the world. And I think what tech initially did to entertainment seemed great. Hey, you know, there was, it was almost like, it was like a, a communist view was brought to entertainment. We can pay everyone tons of money. We can make art. We can make commerce. You're all going to get paid. Everything is great. And, uh, and, uh, and the world is better than it was before. Tech came in and disrupted businesses with, a, with no underpinning of reality. When the spigot was turned off, when interest rates went up, when Wall Street said, hey, you guys have been spending enough um, and now everything is about profit. It's hilarious to me how many conversations I have with bankers about profitability in the last year. And for five years, that word, no, that word didn't exist. This is the first time in history the AMPTP is not in sync. For a hundred years, the AMPTP has made money primarily from making shows and movies at Disney and everyone else. We have two members and two of by far of the most powerful members of the AMPT of the of the AMPTP who totally doesn't matter if they never make TV shows or movies again. I'm not saying that they're the problem. They aren't the problem, but they are the 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 idea that you're sitting at the table with eight people two of whom rely not at all on movies and TV shows makes getting a consensus among the AMPTP incredibly difficult. Everything they say is totally different because it's underpinned by this is not our core business. This is a fun business, but it's not our core business. That doesn't that changes literally every single thought that they have about the negotiation versus Paramount, that their core business is making TV shows and movies and the other five. We have been talking about that on this podcast for a while now that for Amazon and Apple, they're essentially contributing to blowing up a business that for them is just a hobby. Lily, getting back to Netflix for a second, you have been inside the beast, if that's how we're going to describe it. You made Sense8 there. Tell me what it's like to make a series at Netflix, what feels promising about it at the start? What are the challenges? What surprised you? The, I don't know if I would have categorized Netflix as the beast back then. Sense8 actually sat around in Hollywood for a long time. It was so dated that it was uh, uh, like some of the characters were centered around the Iraq war. Finally, Joe had was able to get Netflix uh, uh, to the table Netflix had only a couple of shows. They had House of Cards and something else at the time. And so when we sat down with them, they were like literally four people in the room. And that was, that was the company. Fast forward uh, to me, you know, coming out of the closet, I, you know, I had a lot of changes. You know, I went through my, uh, my astonishing metamorphosis and, um, was trying to pitch uh, work in progress to them, the show that ended up at Showtime. And the facility at Netflix had grown exponentially so that they had these new offices that they had just opened. And all of the folks, all the people who worked in the office couldn't even park at the facility because the personnel had overgrown the capacity of the office. So in terms of like an artist plugging into a corporate uh, infrastructure, 
this is like a totally different experience, you know? So I, I can't, don't think that it's exactly this. It's not the same company from when I first like interfaced with them. They were the same people like would come to our set. They would fly in and we would, you know, we'd see the same faces. And then suddenly those faces, some were gone, some moved up the ladder. And uh, now it's just this faceless behemoth. And do you find that the deal itself is it problematic for you i mean that there's just the idea of a back end when you get something made is there such a thing when you work at netflix yeah we didn't there was no back end there there's a funny like history to back end that there was this moment in time when we had we had come off of the the matrix sequels and we went and uh there was like one in between movie where we went and produced um, V for Vendetta and shot second unit, which was fun. You know, it's a, it's a dream job for a director in a lot of ways, shooting inserts and stuff. And then we went on to speed racer. And then the, the, there was this moment where we were dealing with the studio and the studio was saying, Oh yeah, we're not doing gross participation anymore. And we were like, what, why not? And they were just like, they, they said, our lawyer said that all of the studios got together and they said, we're, we're putting an end to this. And so there was like this meridian in terms of like backend participation where there was kind of like the before and after backend has just become this, uh, it's just this mirage. Uh, when you like look at David Zaslov and David Zaslov's uh, salary last year of two hundred and forty million dollars, I think when you like view that under the uh, under the sort of auspices of how Craig started this conversation about a Ponzi scheme, I think that that is where my head aligns in terms of like looking at these. Studio heads, I understand what you're saying about tech companies and their how they are. There's like an apples and oranges there, but I think that they're all aligned in terms of like what the oligarchy is doing to the world at this moment in time. The entertainment business suffers in the exact same way America suffers which is the division between the haves and the have-nots is obscene. So I do take issue with David Zaslov's salary, but I also take issue with my salary and with Brad Pitt's salary and with Leonardo DiCaprio's salary and with Ryan Murphy's salary. So I think it's not fair to single out executive pay. The the top 0.1% of actors and writers and executives, in my view, and producers, are overpaid. And the disparity of wealth between the top 1% across all of those groups and the rest of everyone else is too great. Greg, technology itself has uh, accelerated the warping of our business and the unraveling of what I think was a very successful model into a complete mess. The um, instinct to rip off labor is as old as time. 
going back to Louis B. Mayer inventing the Oscars to uh, distract artists from wanting to unionize. <laughs> That's why we have the Oscars. And a little brief history lesson when it comes to residuals, because listening to Lily, it's, it's remarkable how she represents something that I think we're all dealing with, which is we don't actually understand anymore how any of this is even calculated. It has become so complicated and so nebulous, but it used to be very simple. And when there was the last time this major emerging technology came along, not streaming, but the emerging technology before it was home video, which did not exist uh, in the, let's say the, the, you know, early seventies, whenever, you know, or late sixties, whenever we were born. And then suddenly it was there, there was Betamax and then there was VHS and the, there were uh, a series of strikes across the eighties. The writer's guild struck three times, I believe in the eighties. And this was one of the big issues and they won a residual rate for home video. So every time uh, the studio sold a VHS tape to a, a, a store, they got money from that store. And then we got a little piece of it and we got a rate and it was a good rate. And then we looked in our books and saw that we were not receiving that money the way we thought we were receiving exactly one fifth of the money we thought we had won. And the studio said, oh yeah, sorry. When we said you were going to get this percentage of this, the this we have just changed the definition of. Our definition of this, which we told you was the gross, is actually 20% of that. So, and even, by the way, even if it had, it didn't matter. <laughs> so, so the writer's guild went on strike again and, uh, and was not able to undo this. What they said to us at the time was, guys, take a deep breath. This is an emerging technology. If you do this to us now, you're going to kill the baby in the cradle. We will not be able to share in this money. Give us the breathing room to develop this new business. And then we will all celebrate together and everything will get back to the way it should. That business grew almost instantaneously into a massive marketplace, massive, uh, far outweighing what they were doing, say, with movies at the, at the box office. And they didn't raise that rate at all. And all of the negotiations that we've had since those days have been essentially building off of that old formula structure. Even when we were getting into new media, it was kind of tied. I mean, Billy, you were there. It's, it was all in context of precedent. Um, and so now we are uh, trying to hit the reset button on a problem that was foisted upon us by the oldest version of Holly. So you can't, I agree with Jason, I can't point at Apple and say, oh my God, everything was great until Apple showed up. No, in fact, I would argue that Apple and Amazon and Netflix and any new arrival uh, was told, by the way, <laughs> look at this old dusty playbook from 1982. It works. Well, not anymore. <laughs> that, that much I think they're finally getting through their heads. That's over. But the instinct to, um, to rip off labor is deeply entrenched in the people who run Hollywood and who employ us. And we are delusional if we think that there's anything new about this. This is, this is a tale as old as time. Here's what I wanna do. I wanna pretend right now that the four of us are CEOs. Okay, we're each responsible for some sort of media empire. 
We've got two massive guild strikes happening at once. The AMPTP negotiation process is clearly broken. Okay, here are the four of us. We're CEOs. We get to rebuild the business. How do we start? One of the things that I would do, I'm not going to say that frustrates me about the AMPTP, but that I would do if I were, um, like you say, in your, in your game, is start with the following. The business of our beautiful business that we love is built on the great work of artists. We cannot, producers, executives are somewhat interchangeable. Artists are not. And I feel so like I get, I get emotional because it drives me crazy that no one is saying, hey, you all are amazing. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for everything. We may not see the deal eye to eye. We may not have the same point of view about the negotiation, but we couldn't survive without your work. Clearly, I'm like emotional about it. And it drives me nuts that nobody's saying that. It really, really drives me nuts. And that's where we should start. And I don't hear anyone saying that. Lily, I'm going to kick it to you for a second. I know it's not a desire of yours to own a media conglomerate, but let's just say for a second that you did. And you had to look down the road five years, 10 years. Where would you put your money? Where would you put your emphasis? Do you think that streaming with ads is the future platform? Do you believe that there is some sort of revolution that is required in terms of the way we look at profits and back end and sharing? The idea of like running a uh, super conglomerate uh, sounds positively uh, horrifying to me. The thing that I like about being a filmmaker is that it is a communal art form. I make shit with a bunch of fellow artists. And that is what gets me going in terms of uh, why I do what I do. I don't feel any of that sentiment when I plug into studios. And so if I had a magic wand, that is what I would change. I would make participants like co-owners. I would like follow more socialist model making when it comes to this particular art form. Craig, you do strike me as someone who could run uh, a media conglomerate. Um, how would yours operate? I'm going to take the assignment in the in the the most bleak form, which is to really imagine. Okay, I've been installed as the CEO of a corporation, responsible to a board of director and shareholders and all the rest of it. And this is what I would say to them: first of all, when it comes to labor, there's a pretty clear path to put them back to work and get them off the picket line. The things they've asked for are actually not that big of a deal. They don't cost very much at all. Let's just do it. Who cares? Let's do it. It's not. It is a negligible amount. Put your pride aside. Pride is not getting us anywhere. Furthermore, the paranoia that um, giving a striking union what it wants is going to induce more strikes is insane and indicative of a complete lack of understanding of how artists work. The truth is we want to work. We're designed to work. We're like, like my grandfather flew, flew planes in the war and he said, when you're going down a runway, you push your stick forward. You keep the plane down because it wants to take off like almost immediately. That's us. We want to make things. We don't want to not make things. There would be two major philosophies that I would engage in. The first is 
I would stop telling artists what they're going to do. So when you listen to Jason and his passion for artists, you start to understand why he has 12 houses and six boats. I'm guessing, Jason, I don't know how many boats you have, but the point is he's been incredibly successful because I suspect, and when I say I suspect, I know, what he's not doing is buying up a bunch of IP that some algorithm, AI, or suite of, of underlings has recommended and then imposing it upon people as a job. What he's doing is following artists who have a passion for something. When we are passionate about what we do, you have to hit us with sledgehammers to keep us from doing it. And it is passion for what we do that creates something special. The world is still trying to figure out how the matrix happened. It happened, it warped us all, it changed our understanding of our own realities. I, I literally think we're living in a simulation because of the matrix. And it's, and it's also beautiful and it is a work of passion. It wasn't like there was a series of matrix novels that they'd been trying to figure out how to convert into a movie. And the Wachowskis were the 19th group of writers that came in to pitch sweatily on it. So instead of imposing things upon artists, have them come in and detect their passion. And when they're passionate about something that you think a lot of people will show up to watch, make it. And the other thing I would do is I would buy, now I'm going to talk like a real businessman. Oh, look at me. I would buy at least one of the largest visual effects companies, if not two. Right now, because of the way our, our production has evolved and how visual effects has become as integrated into the process as turning on lights and having craft services, we have created fairly terrible conditions for workers in the VFX industry because of the insane demand and time pressures. We've also put a downward pressure on quality because everyone is begging this limited pool of visual effects artists to do more and more and more. Uh, movies that would have never touched visual effects now have quite a bit. Um, so creating both a humane and profitable and reliable visual effects resource for a large studio, uh, to me, is a no-brainer. Let's for a second, again, pretend that we're in their shoes and that we have to climb out of this and we have to find a way to create partnership with the WGA and SAG. Jason, be that person. Where would be the first step? If I was running one of these companies, uh, period, and I think a lot of them are doing this, I would go back to what is the natural life of a film and TV show over the course of its 20-year existence to make the most money from it possible. What we have learned it is you are not efficiently monetizing movies or television shows if you make them and let them sit on a single service for 20 years. As many people that have Netflix, it's still only half the people who have TVs. The, the, the artists want to get more and part of the pressure of getting more is monetizing what you make in a way that's efficient. And the way to efficiently monetize movies and shows is to let them have windows in different places because consumers have different services. Most consumers do not have all the streaming services. They have one or two. They have linear television. So when you make a movie or a show, the old idea of windowing it, it can be on HBO for a while and then it goes to USA and then it goes here and then it goes there. 
ultimately over the life of the movie or show, it will, it will do much better if you allow it to move around. So that, that is the first thing that I would do. And the second thing that I would do, which I'm saying till I'm blue in the face is substantially reduce the cost of the shows and movies we are making. And in order to do that, you must tell everyone that we're going to pay you less upfront, but we're going to really include you in a very transparent way. We're going to show you exactly what your movie did, exactly what your television show did, exactly how many people saw it. And if we're making money, you're going to make money. And if we lose money, you're not going to get paid on this any more than you got paid, but you move on to the next one and you must be totally transparent about those results. And that exists today. It exists in the movie business. I have it on every theatrical movie that we do. We are completely transparent. And so the people who are participate know exactly how much the studio is making, the movie is making, and they're going to make. And, and I, it exists. And I, I would push very hard to go back to that. I would also say that when you lower the cost of what you're doing, it's, it's, it's creatively infinitely better because you can take risks. The casting list is no longer five people. It's 15 people who you're comfortable playing the roles. You can, from a writer's point of view, kill your lead at the end of the first act. You can do all these things when the cost is down, which are, which everyone is scared to do when the thing is really, really expensive, because when the thing is really expensive, you're trying to please too many people. And usually it ain't as good. The system that exists right now, the negotiating system, the brinksmanship of it does not work. It doesn't invite or allow innovation. There's no version of walking into that room of proposals and counterproposals where anyone says, well, here's this third idea that might be really interesting. Let's sidebar this one for a second. It doesn't happen. It only happens when CEOs are talking in a back channel fashion to people inside the guild. That's what needs to happen right now. I believe those conversations are beginning to happen. I can feel things loosening up out there. But my question is, since we know that to be true, is the AMPTP as a negotiating entity fundamentally broken? I do think the AMPTP will continue for the same reason the Writers Guild will continue. You want to talk about a disparate group of people. The Writers Guild includes people like me. I'm fucking management. I'm management. I shouldn't even be in the guild. They should kick me out. I run a television show. I can hire and fire writers. That's the definition of management. We are a very weird group of people that somehow all hold ourselves together as best we can. And I would say the same is true for the AMPTP. I think they're growing up a little bit right now in terms of the new members. Remember, Netflix, Apple, Amazon, never really dealt with a strike before. Now they know. Okay, they're growing up a little bit. But no, I don't think the AMPTP is going anywhere. I think it's naive. There's a possibility, which has never happened before, that the AMPTP splits, you know, for, for all the reasons that I'm saying. They have divergent, they have divergent agendas. I agree with you, Craig. I think it's unlikely, but I think it's possible. It's a little bit like us in the union. You know, we can carpet each other and there is dissent, which I do believe is patriotic, and I don't begrudge anybody their opinions. If you follow the rules of the strike, it, then you're following the rules of the strike. That's all I've ever asked of anybody in the union. But even as we feel very different from each other and sort of point at each other and maybe turn into a little bit of a circular firing squad, you only, you can get up to, but you never cross a certain line because you know, on the other side of that line is a point of no return. You can't come back. And you also know this group has kept this all 
going for all these decades. Everything is precedential, going all the way back. There is a continuity. Um, the AMPTP welcomes these new members, but note, they joined in the first place. Can you imagine what some people at Apple, for God's sakes, you know, Tim Cook is like, I'm sorry, I'm now part of a what? I'm. You're telling me that the terms that I'm going to have for my own employees are, I have to be partially dictated to by fucking Jeff Bezos? Are you out of your mind? No. They went, yeah, I guess this is kind of how it goes. And part of the growing pain for the AMPTP is that they don't want to show each other how bad they're doing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like they have to sit in a room and figure out how to show transparency. That's like Jason says, transparency. Well, that means that Amazon and Apple and Netflix and Warner Brothers and Disney and Universal have to go, okay, guys, uh, we're, we're competitors. We hate each other. Uh, let's all sh let's all open the kimonos. Uh, that's a tough one for them, but that's there's no there. I don't think there's any other alternative for them. Everybody comes in with their like capital, their money hats on, and it's always it's always about money, and that's I think we need to start thinking about art <laughs> and not about money. At the risk of losing my guild card, um, but with a sincere desire to make this podcast less about advocacy and more about problem solving, is there anywhere that you believe that either guild, uh, writers or SAG, uh, have overreached, have asked for too much? No, I think uh, all of the demands are like good starting points, but you know, you enter into a negotiation. Jason? Yes, I mean, absolutely. I don't have the points in front of me, but both sides are overreaching, of course. Yes, absolutely. The AI thing is like, I think, super over, in my mind, overblown and everyone's frantic about something that no, that we that we don't really understand. And I think, I mean, Craig could speak to this better than I do. I don't think you're doing anyone any favors forcing people to hire people they're not going to use. I think the worst person who who suffers from that is the person who has the job because they're in a job that no one wants them to have. So I think that's that's I think there has to be another way to figure that out. Of course, I think both sides have to come to a, in the middle. I don't think I I am on the side of the artists, but that doesn't mean it, that, that I think that the only way to a deal is just do everything that they want. It's not it's not possible. Craig Obviously, we all know, I don't think I'm giving away any major negotiation secrets here. You don't ask for what you're willing to settle for right away, but nobody does that. So we all understand that both sides come in a little hot uh, to varying degrees. I think on a principled level, the concepts of what the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild are asking for are correct. The degrees to which they're asking is probably where you'll see movement and um, some consensus when a deal is finally struck. And it's important for people to remember this. No matter how strongly we feel during a strike and no matter how angry we get and no matter how upset and aggrieved we feel, it necess necessarily ends with an agreement. And that agreement will likely not make everyone thrilled. That's a tough thing to just accept, but it is part of life. Um, we will not get everything we want. They will not get everything they want. Um, 
but I do think, at least from a principal point of view, what we're talking about are degrees. Uh, how much, how many weeks, how many people, how much money, you know, these are the, as opposed to, now, I disagree with Jason on AI only to the extent that, I mean, look, from a large point of view, if AI can do the things that I do, um, then uh, it, it can't right now. But let's say in five years it can, then honestly, none of this matters. There's not going to be a writer's guild anymore. It doesn't matter. They're just going to get rid of us. But I would say the same thing to the companies, which is, guys, if in five years you can have a Craig bot, then this doesn't matter. Just give them what they want. Because guess what? None of us are going to be here. There's not going to be a writer's guild and you're not going to be here either because I, I know this much for fucking sure. If, if a program can do what I can do in five years, it can do what they can do in a minimum of three, but possibly, you know, like possibly four, but definitely not five. So, so we're all getting replaced if that happens. So just give it up. It doesn't matter. Just say it. I think it's more important right now for the actors than the writers. I do. Um, because there are very real issues right now. They can do things with the image of actors with their faces and their voices that is highly disconcerting. But uh, yeah, my advice to the uh, studios on that one is just shut up. Shut up and just give them what they want. Because either this replaces us all or we're all going to be laughing about it five years from now. It's one or the other. <laughs> That's it. Well, there you have it. Three people who know what it's like to design the plane, build the plane, fly the plane, and land the plane. They have each built their careers on hard work and faith, but they have also been the beneficiaries of the faith of others. At critical moments in each of their careers, some executives saw something in them and decided to place a bet on their talent. The result has been a lot of money for those companies and three great legacies of incredible work. That is how Hollywood is supposed to function. Executives and artists trusting one another, betting on one another, building something together that benefits everyone while taking the world to places it's never seen before. The last 747 that will ever be built rolled off the assembly line in February of this year and went right to work. Other models, like the Airbus 380, have surpassed it now, taking up a large chunk of market share. Yet the final iteration of this industry legend, the 747-8, is the best one Boeing's ever made. It's been in the air for years with a perfect safety record. It is a spectacular success story. It served the world while employing entire generations and bringing huge profits to every company that it touched. Again, it was executives with vision and guts, engineers with talent and drive, and laborers with enormous pride in their work, a community. Today, as talks resume between the AMPTP and the Writers Guild, my hope is that the companies who speak as one through that alliance will remember what Chris Kaiser and David Goodman already know. Treat us like chattel and you'll be grounded forever. Treat us like partners, and you'll be flying the friendly skies. I want to thank all my guests and my brilliant producers, Benjamin Bloom and Hannah Baker. Please join me next week when my guests will be Amelia Earhart and Howard Hughes and maybe even Todd Garner. This is Strike Talk. I can
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.